welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. But you may wonder, how will we know whether or not the prophecy is from the Lord? If the prophet speaks in the Lord's name, but his prediction does not happen or come true, you will know that the Lord did not give that message. That prophet has spoken without my authority and need not be feared. Deuteronomy chapter 18 verses 21 and 22 New Living Translation On the day the Lord gave the Israelites victory over the Amorites, Joshua prayed to the Lord in front of all the people of Israel. He said, Let the sun stand still over Gibeon, and the moon over the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stayed in place, until the nation of Israel had defeated its enemies. The sun stayed in the middle of the sky, and it did not set as on a normal day. There has never been a day like this one before or since when the Lord answered such a prayer. Surely the Lord fought for Israel that day. Joshua chapter 10 verses 11 through 14 New Living Translation Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth. Brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. Today on Anchored by Truth, we're going to continue our discussion of miracles in the Bible, possibly one of the most misunderstood parts of Scripture. To help us do that, I'm here today with R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books and part-time cold storage space planner. That means he arranges the drinks in the mini-fridge when it starts getting full. Sometimes we think it's a miracle that they all fit. Anyway, as those who have been listening for the last few weeks know, we've been looking into many of the Bible's accounts of miracles. R.D., why don't you give us a little background on why you wanted to begin this discussion? Well, I thought it was important for us to take an extended look at biblical miracles because our understanding of miracles is, or at least it can be, tied to how we view the validity and reliability of Scripture. How so? because critics of the Bible often argue that the Bible is not a reliable historical account. And one of the criticisms that they level at the Bible is that the accounts of the miracles contained in the Bible demonstrate that the Bible cannot be reliable history. The critics' argument is essentially that since it is impossible, in their view, to violate the natural laws of physics or chemistry, that any time the Bible contains a story that seems to do so, that that story, that story of a seeming violation of the laws of physics or chemistry, must be myth or fairy tale. And in addition to that issue, if you don't study the accounts of the Bible's miracles carefully, a believer can still form the false impression that the miracles in the Bible are just sort of random or sporadic or chaotic events, 
Now, there are good things that may happen from time to time, but the miracles in the Bible don't really have any overarching or discernible pattern, and this is just not true. The miracles in the Bible are always used by God for specific purposes, but always as a part of His plan for the redemption of a people for Himself. As we have talked about in our first few episodes on this topic, we have seen that in fact the Bible uses descriptions of miracles for specific purposes that all fit in with the Bible's overall story of redemption. Specifically, we've seen that God uses miracles to validate that certain people throughout the biblical period were messengers that He sent. The fact that some people could perform miracles was a graphic illustration that that person had been tasked by God to bring God's message to the people of their time. And when that message was recorded and preserved in the Bible, to us. And we have also seen that there were certain periods in biblical history when there were clusters of miracles that seemed to mark certain important turning points in redemptive history such as the miracles that accompanied Moses leading the people out of Egypt, or Jesus inaugurating the New Covenant. Precisely. And during these episodes on Anchored by Truth, we have seen that miracles in the Bible may vary widely in their immediate effect, maybe for something as seemingly mundane as recovering a lost axe head from a river, to something as big as feeding crowds of thousands with just a few loaves and a couple of fish. So the immediate impact of any particular miracle may vary from what we consider to be small or we may consider it to be very big, but the span of these immediate impacts shows that God is the God of both the big and the small. And it also shows that God is not only in control of the destinies of single individuals, but God is also in control of the destinies of nations. And you said that today you wanted to build on the foundation by examining a couple of other dimensions of biblical miracles. And all of this is leading us to an examination of the objections that are often lodged against the miracle accounts and a review of whether biblical miracles still continue today. Yes, although I don't think that we'll get to those two particular subjects in today's episode of Anchored by Truth, because I think there's some other things that we need to cover first. We've stressed heavily in our first few episodes of this series that God used miracles in the Bible to authenticate certain people as being messengers sent specifically from Him, from God. But I think that there's another important point that we haven't touched on up until this time. And that is... That while miracles in the Bible were one way that God authenticated His messengers, it was not the only way that He did so. In other words, God may have authenticated a person by using miracles, but there was another way that God used also to authenticate specific messengers that were coming from Him. And that's why we included in our opening scriptures the verses from Deuteronomy chapter 18 verses 21 through 22. Yes, those verses from Deuteronomy show us that there was another way that God authenticated certain people as being genuine prophets, and that was by giving those people, those prophets, supernatural knowledge. Now, sometimes the supernatural knowledge that God conveyed to his prophets concerned events that were in the immediate or very near future, and sometimes the prophet received knowledge about something that wouldn't take place for decades or even centuries in the future. So, for instance, Let's take a look at the prophet Isaiah. And the prophet Isaiah prophesied about 700 years before Jesus was born. 
Well, the prophet Isaiah is the prophet who told us that Jesus would be born of a virgin. He did that in Isaiah 7.14. And as another example, Isaiah also told us that Jesus, or the Messiah, would be buried in a rich man's tomb. That was in Isaiah 53.9. So Isaiah gave us some prophecies that proved to be true, but they wouldn't prove to be true for over 700 years after Isaiah gave them. But Isaiah also gave some very important and frankly very practical information to one of the kings that he served during the period of his ministry. Isaiah was the prophet who told King Hezekiah that the Assyrian army, which was at that point trying to invade Israel and Jerusalem, would fail in their attempt to capture Jerusalem. Now, at the time that Isaiah told King Hezekiah this, things were looking pretty grim in Jerusalem. The Assyrians were approaching Jerusalem with a huge army. So at the time being, it looked almost like a foregone conclusion that the Assyrians would probably raise what they called siege mounds against the city of Jerusalem and undoubtedly in the end would wind up capturing, overtaking, and probably reducing Jerusalem to a huge pile of rubble. But Isaiah told King Hezekiah, don't worry about that huge Assyrian army. They are not only going to never build siege ramps against the city, but they're not even going to be able to shoot an arrow into Jerusalem. Well, just as Isaiah prophesied, the Lord turned the Assyrian army around. And the way that the Lord did that on this occasion was that the Lord sent one of his angels to kill in a single night 185,000 of the Assyrian soldiers. So naturally, when the Assyrians lost 185,000 of their soldiers in a single night from the Assyrian side, that would have looked like a pretty mysterious happening to them. So once they lost their 185,000 soldiers, they turned around and headed back to Assyria. And just as Isaiah had prophesied, they never even shot a single arrow inside the walls of Jerusalem. So the fulfillment of the near-term prophecies gave the people confidence that the prophets speaking had been sent by God. This meant that not only would their near-term prophecies be true, but also their long-term ones would come to pass. And I think it's important to note the test that God established whether someone who claimed to be a prophet was a pretty demanding one. Anyone claiming to be a prophet had to be 100% accurate. Even a single prophetic failure disqualified that person. That, of course, is a stark contrast to the records of so many of the so-called prophets who have appeared throughout the ages. And it's also important to note that the biblical prophets gave very specific prophecies. For instance, the prophet Micah gave the name of the town where the Messiah would be born And he did that about 700 years before Jesus was born. Exactly. So we now have two different ways that we know that God authenticated certain people as being messengers sent directly from him. Some of the prophets perform miracles, signs, and wonders, as the Bible usually puts it. Some prophets demonstrated a supernatural knowledge of future events. Now, I want to emphasize that there are these two different ways by which God confirmed his prophets, confirmed his messengers. I want to emphasize that there are these two different ways for a very specific reason. Which is? Well, when we take a look at the physical created order, we can see that it consists of at least four major components. Matter, energy, space, and time. And all of these components have a relationship with one another. And all of these components have what we might call normal behavioral patterns. And we typically speak of those relationships among the four components and their normal behavioral patterns 
as natural laws. And while time is often thought to be constant among those components, we find out that even time is not constant. We think of time as being an invariable construct, that it always moves in one direction, that it always moves at a specific pace or speed. But Einstein predicted in his special theory of relativity that time would actually vary in its progress depending on whether or not an object was in motion. Well, today science has confirmed Einstein's prediction, and today we call that phenomenon time dilation. Time dilation is essentially the difference in elapsed time that is measured by two different clocks. And that time dilation effect could be due either to them having a different relative velocity to one another, or there being a gravitational potential difference between the locations of where the clocks are measuring time. Well, all of that is pretty interesting. But what does it have to do with the fact that God used two different ways of authenticating his prophets, his messengers, miracles, and supernatural future knowledge? All that's important. It's more than just interesting. It's important because when God used those two different ways of interceding in the created order, God demonstrated his control, his sovereignty over all the facets of the physical created order. Think about it. When Elisha caused an iron axe head to float to the surface of a moving river, God suspended one or more natural laws that govern either density or buoyancy. When Moses raised his hands and God parted the Red Sea using a strong and constant wind, God was redirecting the laws that pertain to aerodynamics and hydrodynamics and thermodynamics. When God sent a star to guide the wise men from the east to where Jesus could be found shortly after his birth, God was demonstrating his control not only of matter and energy, but also of space. And when God gave supernatural knowledge of future events to his prophets, God was demonstrating his control over time. And so think about the miracle that we heard about in our second opening scripture today. Joshua was praying to the Lord that the Lord would extend the length of the day in which the Israelite army was battling the Amorite army. Joshua prayed that God would give them additional sunlight hours so that they could thoroughly defeat the Amorite armies because, of course, in those days, it was very difficult for armies to fight after the sun went down. So Joshua prayed to the Lord that the Lord would extend the length of the sunlight day, and God did so. Well, when God prolonged the day, when God extended the length of sunlight that was available to Joshua and the Hebrews that day to defeat the Amorites, God was not only demonstrating his control over matter, energy, space, and time, but God was also demonstrating his control over the relationships that govern all four of those, including the intricacies of creation that have only recently come to scientific attention, such as time dilation. So God when he used two different ways of authenticating his prophets, one that involved miracles having immediate effect over most often physical things, but the second of giving them supernatural knowledge, God was demonstrating that he is sovereign, he is fully in control at all times over matter, energy, space, and time. I mean, it's just an incredible thought. Wow. I'm starting to see where you're going with all of this. God used miracles to both save and help his people with immediate needs, both big and small. And by using specific people as his agents in performing some of these miracles, 
God added a future dimension, a future benefit, to his work. By using some people as his agents and messengers, God showed his people that those messengers were trustworthy and they could rely on them to help them with day-to-day questions as well as giving kings a wise counselor they could turn to for advice. And God gave supernatural knowledge of far future events so that long after the death of the prophet, future generations would have signs that would confirm God's continued superintendence of redemptive history. This included providing dozens, and some say hundreds, of signs of the most important event of all time, the arrival of the Messiah. Wow. When you think about that, it starts to give you a headache. Yes, it does. You know, at some point in their life, most people are going to ask themselves the question, why am I here? Is there a purpose to my life? Well, the answer to that question is directly dependent on two other questions. Is there a God, and does that God communicate with people? Well, obviously, Christianity answers those questions with a resounding yes, there is a God, and yes, God does communicate with people. But then that leads to another question, and this is a question that we approach in one way or another on every episode of Anchored by Truth. And that question is, well, which of the various books that claim to be the Word of God is actually the Word of God? In other words, Which book that claims to be a special revelation from Almighty God is, in fact, the true revelation? Well, I think that's a very reasonable question. To choose among the various books that all claim to be a special revelation from an Almighty God, which of those books actually has evidence that supports its claim to being the authentic revelation from an Almighty God? Well, I think the answer to which of those books is that revelation deserves a thoughtful answer. So I think that far from being a detriment to the validity of the Bible's truth claims about it being the Word of God, the Bible's accounts of miracles actually lead to considerable support to the validity of that claim. I think this is going to need some clarification. We started out by observing that critics believe that the Bible's accounts of miracles can cast doubt on whether the Bible is historically reliable. But you're saying the Bible's accounts of miracles actually support its validity. Yes. We often say on Anchored by Truth that any book that claimed to be the inspired and errant and infallible word of an almighty God would, at a minimum, have to satisfy two criteria. First, that book would have to be consistent with what we know about the physical creation. And it would have to be consistent with what we know about life, about man, and about man's history. And second, that book that claimed to be an inspired and errant and infallible word from Almighty God would have to contain evidence of having a supernatural origin. I mean, if you think about it for just a second, there have been some magnificent books and even magnificent series of books that have been written during mankind's history. I mean, the Bible contains a lot of history, but there have been some other marvelous histories that have come down to us even from the ancient times. Josephus, Herodotus, Xenophon, and a lot of other ancient writers wrote extensive histories about the world as it existed during biblical times. In addition to histories, there have been groundbreaking scientific volumes that have been written during man's history, groundbreaking scientific volumes that opened up scientific horizons to generations, scientific understanding of how the created order operates. There have been volumes written about scientific discoveries and scientific exploration. 
that generations before that volume was written couldn't have even conceived of the material that was in that scientific book. And naturally, throughout mankind's history, there have been magnificent works of philosophy or fiction that have been produced by great thinkers and great writers down through the ages. I mean, mankind's history contains, well, just a plethora of wonderful and marvelous books of history, science, philosophy, and even of fiction. But none of these other books, as wonderful as they may be, contain any significant evidence of supernatural inspiration. But the Bible does contain evidence of supernatural inspiration. And the biblical accounts of miracles are part of the evidence that the Bible, in fact, was supernaturally inspired and that it contains records of God's supernatural intervention into his created order, his sovereignty over that created order. But you're not saying that just because there are stories of miracles in the Bible, that proves that the Bible was supernaturally inspired. That would be a form of circular reasoning that would go something like this. The Bible writers wrote about certain supernatural events. Therefore, because the events they wrote about were supernatural, that demonstrates that the writer was supernaturally inspired. Well, as you just described it, that would be circular reasoning. And of course, circular reasoning is a classic fallacy in logical reasoning. Because a circular reasoning process begins with the end that is trying to be proven. But that's not what I'm referring to. Okay. So what are you referring to? Well, most people, even Bible critics, will agree that the Bible is an essentially reliable historical document. I mean, even secular historians and archaeologists will use the Bible as a reference source when they're conducting their research. Now, that secular historian or archaeologist may or may not believe all of the individual stories within the Bible but they will certainly subscribe to the notion that many parts of the Bible are historically reliable. Let's just take as an example, for instance, a brief look at the book of Acts. Now, most scholars agree that the book of Acts was written by Luke, and it was written sometime before 62 AD. In the book of Acts, Luke mentions 32 countries, 54 cities, and nine Mediterranean islands, and many prominent scholars, such as J.B. Lightfoot, have concluded that Luke got the locations of all of those cities, all of those countries, and all those islands not only correct, but Lightfoot also concluded that Luke got their relative positions correct and their cultural peculiarities correct. Furthermore, after he had investigated the historicity of the Book of Acts extensively for decades, the famous archaeologist Sir William Ramsey concluded that Luke did a masterful job of keeping straight the convoluted world of Roman government titles. Ramsey wrote, and I'm quoting now, The officials with whom Paul and his companions are brought into contact are those who would be there. Every person is found just where he ought to be. Proconsuls in senatorial provinces, Asiarchs in Ephesus, Strategoi in Philippi, Politarchs in Thessalonica, and magicians and soothsayers everywhere. The point is that in those areas where we can test Luke's historical accuracy, we find out that Luke passes the test of being a very careful and observant historian. And Luke is the same writer who tells us that Peter performed numerous miracles during the weeks and months following Jesus' resurrection. 
Acts chapter 5 verse 15 says that there was a time when people in Israel were healed just by having Peter's shadow fall on them as he was walking to the temple in Jerusalem. So your point is that if Luke were such a careful historian to be sure that he got the titles of Roman bureaucrats correct, would he be any less careful when he preserved the accounts of miracles that occurred? Exactly. You know, it's not impossible that a careful and diligent historian like Luke could have made up miraculous stories, but why would he? If Luke's accounts of miracles were fabricated, his first readers would have known that, and that would have immediately compromised Luke's credibility, not only for the miraculous stories, but for anything else he wrote. And it goes without saying that Luke knew his credibility was on the line because he was writing books about Jesus to a hostile Roman world. So Luke's otherwise discernible historical reliability and the fact that Luke knew he was writing to a world where fabricated material would quickly be discovered and dismissed, all of that lends a strong element of credibility to the records that Luke produced. So if Luke wrote truthfully about supernatural events, about the miracles that he described, well knowing that such accounts would be questioned, It lets us know, it helps us see that not only was there a supernatural source to the events that Luke described, but there was also a supernatural source behind Luke's preservation of the record of the events. In other words, Luke knew he was writing a book that was going to be subject to intense scrutiny. Luke went beyond the pale to try to make sure that he got everything correct. So if Luke was so careful about everything else, about mundane things like locations of cities and islands and titles of government officials, if he tells us that Jesus ascended into heaven and he tells us that Peter's shadow falling on people could heal them, we can trust that those supernatural events occurred as Luke described them. And obviously only a God, only an omniscient, omnipotent, self-existent creator could have caused those supernatural events to have occurred the way they did. So. The reasoning process starts with the fact that we test Luke's credibility as a historian, and when we find out that he passes the test, we can proceed to see what the content of his reliable historical records demonstrates. And in this case, Luke's historical reliability helps demonstrate that God was intervening in miraculous ways during the time of the early church's formation giving us strong evidence that it was God himself who was building his church, just as Jesus promised he would. Sounds like a perfect time to close with a prayer. Today, let's pray a prayer of adoration for the God who not only created everything, but also uses his power to sustain and maintain an entire universe. A God who can create a universe with 50 billion galaxies, each of which has 50 billion stars out of nothing, is certainly capable of intervening in that creation to demonstrate that he is the one behind it all. A prayer of praise for the Creator. Mighty and everlasting Father, you are a kind and merciful God. You have given us eyes to see, fingers to touch, ears to hear, 
and minds to understand. You bring us into the full and certain knowledge of your transcendent creative power. When men gazed at the stars and sky, they could perceive the depth, but not measure the distance. Through your grace, man now has the ability to understand that your cosmos is more supremely complex and vast than ever could have been known before. What mortal mind can fathom this magnificence? Praise be to you, Father of the galaxy, and praise to your Son, who created at your right hand. It is because of his descent that we will one day be lifted up. So we pray and give thanks in his name. Amen. We'd like to remind our audience that a lot of our radio episodes are linked together in series of topics. So if they've missed any episodes, all of these are available on your favorite podcast app. To find them, just search on Anchored by Truth by Crystal Sea Books. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is.